Well, I don't know, but you guys used to a quick drive through almost any town, at least in America. You find dozens of church, even in a small area. Sometimes, and quite often, you'll find churches literally next door to other churches, and I think it's actually pretty common. They're just all over the place. You might wonder, maybe in the past you've wondered, why? Why are there so many different churches? And are they all legitimate? And just anyone come together, any group of people come together and call themselves a church? What about those other churches like the Mormon church, the Christian science church, the church of Scientology? And really, what makes a church? How are the people of God to come together to serve the Lord? What is the church? In our study tonight in this little basic Bible doctrine series, going through the basics of the Christian faith, we aim to find out. And we come tonight near the end to study the doctrine of the church, which is formerly called ecclesiology. And like the doctrine of the church has not traditionally been the most important doctrine. I think especially today, given the number of churches and the, the growing number of differences between them, we, we want to know what the Bible says about the church. The waters have been muddied. False churches exist. So we want to just get back to God's word to see what he thinks about his church. Now, the church is actually a broad topic, especially in the New Testament. We'll see if we can bring some organization as we just survey some of the basics about what the Bible says about the church. So we'll, we'll jump into this study now and we'll give you some five headings to organize our time as we learn about the church. And we'll start with, well, just the definition of the church, straight up to understand what the church is, what it really means, the definition of the church. Now, how do you define it? It really centers on this word for church, how it's used. Uh, we use the word church today in, in many, many different ways, which of those ways are biblical. Many different understandings of the word church, some used today, some in scripture. Typically, we, we use the church today to refer to a building, like a, a physical structure, that is actually foreign to the New Testament. They did not have physical structures in which to gather. Maybe a house, sometimes referred to as a house church, but they did not have church buildings. It's foreign. Sometimes today we refer to the church uh, as a denomination, like the Presbyterian church, a Lutheran church, a larger unit a denomination, likely you don't find that in the New Testament. Sometimes the church can refer to all believers in a region, like the churches of Galatia, the churches of Asia. Typically, it refers to all believers in a city, at least in the New Testament. There's only one church per town, so the church of Corinth, the church of Rome. Uh, mostly, though, we'll, we'll use church to refer to all believers in a local gathering. In the New Testament, you see that as being a house church. Just that's where they're able to gather. If they had a building. I'm sure they would have used it. They didn't have that luxury for several hundred years. So typically used to refer to all believers in a local gathering. But sometimes they can just refer to all believers in Christ. And Christ said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. He was talking about, well, just everyone, every true believer. And those last two distinctions really get into the, the difference between the visible church and the invisible church. Just a simple little distinction we make. The visible church, well, refers to all professing believers. The, the church you can see, everyone who calls themselves a Christian, whether they even attend a local church or not. Everyone who calls themselves a Christian is part of this visible church, but it's not a pure body. Christ himself said that in his church, the tares would grow among the wheat and there would always be false believers mixed in with the true until he returns. And so the visible church never consists of only ever true believers. That belongs to the invisible church that refers to uh, the perfect nature of the church, all those who truly know and follow Christ, who are enrolled in the book of life, that's the invisible church. Now, the word church itself comes to the Greek word ekklesia. It literally means the called out ones, those who've been called out. And back then, in the secular sense, the word referred to any gathering. So any assembly of people was a church. And now today, when we think of the word church, we instantly have religious connotations, but before Jesus, the word church did not have really religious connotations, definitely not Christian or Jewish connotations. In the ancient Greek and Roman world, ecclesia, just a gathering of people, any, any gathering, no religious connotations per se. Now that completely changed after Christ. The New Testament writers started using this word church 
to refer to a, a gathering of Christians, assembly of Christians. And because at first, because it had such secular connotations, they had to qualify it like the church of Jesus Christ, the church of God. That this is not just any old gathering. This is a, a Christian gathering. But over time, it didn't take long that the, the term church really evolved into a technical term. Well, now they kind of hijacked the word and it, it clearly became a Christian technical term for the gathering of, of Christians, God's people. And that is the primary meaning today of the word church. It's just the collection of true believers in Christ, whether that's universal or locally. It's just the gathering, the collection of followers of Christ. And the church is universal in nature, but it finds expression in local assemblies. And we can add here when the church began, as we're thinking about just the broad definition of the church. When did the church begin? It's helpful to, to decide that and, and really not decide, but to study that. Did the church begin with Adam? Did it begin with Abraham, with Christ, or later? And what does the Bible say? Scripture makes rather clear that the church is a New Testament body. And that's because the church is the people of the new covenant. Just by definition, it's the people of the new covenant. It's the gathering of those in the new covenant. And Jesus inaugurated the new covenant on the cross, but it was not applied until he poured out the spirit. And that's why pretty clearly the church begins in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, when the spirit comes and fills the first believers, and right thereafter, that's really seen as the formal beginning to the, the formal church. Yeah, and a few points to support that. You know, back in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the term church is only referred to three times by Christ himself in Matthew, and every time he, it's future, he looks forward to the church to come, that he, he will, future tense, build his church. Also, you know, the books of Luke and Acts, Luke wrote both of them. And it's interesting, the word church is used zero times in Luke, but 23 times in Acts. It shows he's consciously avoiding using the term to describe Christ's followers before the coming of the Spirit. Keeps that very consistent. You also might know that the church is referred to as a mystery, like in Ephesians, the mystery of the church. That refers to something that is not revealed in the Old Testament, but is now being made known and well, that fits the church. Likewise, in Ephesians 2, Paul calls the church, you know, one new man. It's where Jew and Gentile come together in one new body in this new covenant. Well, that's what the church is, something new. And seeing that Jesus himself said that the baptism of the Spirit was still future, right before his ascension, and that the formation of the church is tied to the Spirit's work applying the new covenant, it's pretty straightforward to see the the formal beginning of the church as Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit in Acts 2. The church is a Spirit-filled, Christ-centered people of God. That's really what it is. Now, let's round this, this section out with some pictures of the church. As we broadly define the church and like what is it, get a general understanding of the church, it helps to know that there's actually several very prominent metaphors or pictures used for the church throughout Scripture. Even the five main ones. These just help us learn a little bit more about the identity and the function of the church, who we are, who we're supposed to be, what we're supposed to do. It helps to know some of these main pictures. And you, you know these, you've heard all these. If I, if I challenge you to write them down, you might struggle to think of them. But once you hear them, you know them all. And the first is the body. And this might be the most common picture of the church, that of the body. Christ is the head of the body. We are the body. He's the head, we're the body. And the body imagery showcases the unity of the church, even though it's comprised of diverse, diverse members. We're all so different, yet we're knit together. We're interdependent in this one unified body, meant to work together, uh, work together rather, for the building up of the body. Christ being head of this body teaches the lordship, the headship of Christ. Jesus rules the church. He gives direction to the church. And he wants to see this body mature and grow. So his supremacy is clear. You see this in like Romans 12, 4 and 5. It says, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, individually members one of another. Likewise, Ephesians 1, 22, 23 says, The Lord put all things in subjection under his feet, gave him Christ as head over all things to the church, which is his body. 
You can also just read the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 12. You'll get the body analogy in full. And Paul really fleshes that out. Now, the second analogy you hear all the time at weddings. It's of the bride. The bride of Christ. The church is pictured as the bride. Jesus is the groom. This, again, teaches the headship of Christ over the church, just as the husband is the head of the wife. But this also depicts Christ's love for the church and his desire to see the church pure. That really the bride imagery showcases the love of the Savior for the church more than all the rest. That's really what stands out with the image of the bride. It goes both directions, says we love him too. Ephesians 5.23 says the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ also is the head of the church, himself being the savior of the body. But then we're reminded, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church, gave himself up for her. We learn a lot about the husband-wife relationship from Christ and the church, but let's not forget that Marriage itself was meant in a way to mirror and point forward to, and now back to, uh, Christ's relationship with the church, what he did to secure his bride. A third big analogy is that of a a building, or more specific, a temple. The church is a building or or temple. We're depicted as God's building, which he's, he's still forming. This building has Christ himself as the cornerstone and then the apostles and prophets as the foundation. And all believers then, we are assembled together as living stones in this building. Each new believer, one more brick, one more brick. We're building up. Uh, This imagery teaches the oneness of the church, the solidarity of the church, our strength and our unity among diversity. We're being built up as God's dwelling place, the, the place he dwells. Uh, it's, no, it's not in a, a brick building. He, he aims to dwell among his people. Just why, side note, in the new heavens, new earth, there's no temple. There's no need for a, a brick and mortar temple. And the people of God are, are the dwelling place of the Lord. He dwells with us directly. But Ephesians 2, 19 through 20 says, you are God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole being being a whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. That's Ephesians 2, 19 through 20, a key verse. And then you probably know 1 Peter 2, 5, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. Now the fourth uh, big analogy for the church is Flock. We are the flock of God. This is a tender image used to describe the church. Christ is the shepherd. He's the chief shepherd, the good shepherd. And we're the sheep. We're the ones who know his voice, who follow him. This metaphor really teaches Christ's affection, his care for the church. Jesus is possessive and protective over his flock. He, He will not lose even a single sheep. And as a good shepherd, he'll even lay down his life. For the sheep he, he already has. And now likewise, the sheep are known as those who follow Christ. And that should characterize the church. How do you know a sheep? The ones who follow him, who hear his voice, who do what he says. John ten eleven, Christ said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Read the rest of John 10. It's all about the, the sheep uh, imagery. You also see it in 1 Peter 5, 2 through 4. Peter calls the elders to shepherd the flock of God among you, proving to be examples to the flock, waiting for the chief shepherd to appear. And functionally in the church, the word pastor, poimen, just means shepherd. We are taking this analogy and, and replaying it in a lesser form. And pastors are referred to as under shepherds. We're carrying the baton on from the Lord in a sense of overseeing, watching over his people, his flock, until the chief shepherd reappears. And the last big analogy, there's others, there's quite a few, but the last one, last main one is that of branches, branches to the vine. Uh, Jesus is pictured as this life-giving vine, and we are the branches, which God expects to bear fruit. So quite a lot is taught with this metaphor. It teaches that Christ is the source of all life and spiritual vitality. Apart from him, we can do nothing. 
We as a church, we are to be united to Christ in communion with Christ, abiding in him. If we are to grow and bear fruit, we have to be glued to Christ all the time. John 15, 5, Christ said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And again, the, the first half of John 15, he fleshes out that analogy and, and its value. Now, you probably picked up, you look at those, you put them together, you see a few big highlights. All those analogies, one way or another, teach the unity of the church. It comes out in all of them. Christ himself prayed in the high priestly prayer that his church, his followers, would be one, one people. These images all contribute to that teaching. Though the church is formed with diverse people, diverse backgrounds, with diverse giftings, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, and nonetheless, we are to come together with this profound unity in one Savior, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one calling, so forth, and show the world the power of, of our oneness, which can only be explained by, by Christ. And so it makes us wonder and reflect, you know, how well are we living in harmony with fellow believers? We need to be pursuing a real, true unity with the body of Christ, with fellow believers. In a big way, practically, you can grow in unity I'll mention here as a side note, is, is by service. Learn to, to serve the local church body selflessly with your spiritual gifts. You'll find the Lord will endear you to the church and the church to you as you, you emulate Christ. You start giving of yourself, laying down your life for others to build up others in the body with your spiritual gifts, which is what he calls us to do. But you may not also notice that all these metaphors, they also highlight Christ. He's, he's the center of attraction when it comes to the church. They're all Christ-centered. The church should be Christ-centered. Jesus is the head, the groom, the cornerstone, the shepherd, and the vine. He's the most important feature in all those analogies. We are derivative. We derive any value or place from him. He's supreme. He's the source of all life, direction, and spiritual growth reminds us of many things. And again, if we are to grow, we need him. We need to be abiding in Christ, seeking him, following him, but also that the church must keep Christ at the center. We cannot be deviated from, from Christ, knowing, following, worshiping him. You know, all too many churches, Christ seems absent. You would go through many a Sunday service, never really hear of Christ, know Christ, see him in his word, hear him praised. We must never let Christ be absent from the church. He's, he's the whole reason we're here. We exist at the end of the day. It's to seek, to follow, to worship him. All right. So that's the, the first kind of big general section as we're going to go through the doctrine of the church. Just a section on the definition of the church. Let's move into, secondly here, the purpose of the church. Let's clarify this. The purpose of the church. God designed the church for many different reasons and purposes. These can be broadly summarized under three headings. And if you're a member at this church, you've heard these before because it's in our membership class. But it is to exalt, to edify, and to evangelize, the three E's. And these three uh, headings represent the church's purpose in its three different relationships. When it comes to the church's upward relationship with God, we are to exalt, exalt God. When it comes to our inward relationship with one another, we are to edify, edify believers. When it comes to our outward relationship with the world around us, we are to evangelize, evangelize the lost. So just briefly looking at these, starting with exalt God, it's the primary purpose. The primary purpose of the church is worship. We are to exalt, to give glory to God. God created all things to bring him glory. The church should not be an exception. The church should be leading that pack. This worship should come from our lips, but also our lives as we seek to offer up ourselves as living sacrifices to God's will. 1 Corinthians 10.31 reminds us whether we eat, drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You see often refrains like Ephesians 3.21, it says, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Church should be about the glory of God. But secondly, to edify the saints, that the main purpose we're given in relation to the church itself is to edify it. That means to build up. 
We are to use the spiritual gifts the Lord has given us to build up one another into the image of Christ, to, to help seek the Christ-likeness of one another. The goal of this edification is spiritual maturity, such that individually and corporately, we, we look more like Christ. We bear the image of Christ more and more for God's glory and for the world's witness. Key verse here is Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. Saying how God gave some as apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. It says, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. This is our mission inwardly, to see the body of Christ built up. And Paul reflects this in Colossians 1.28. It says, we proclaim Christ, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man, every person, complete in Christ. It's the goal of ministry, inwardly, to present every person complete in Christ, mature, perfect in Christ. And lastly, our third purpose is to evangelize the lost when it comes to the outsider, the one who doesn't know the Lord. We are to evangelize, to proclaim the gospel to the lost publicly, privately, locally, globally, not just for pastors, given to all believers to take part and in some way, in evangelizing the lost. It comes right from the Great Commission to go, therefore, into all uh, the nations and uh, make disciples of all the nations, rather, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Paul reminds Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, 5, says, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And 2 Corinthians five eighteen says, these things are from God who reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The Lord gave to us, the church, this ministry of reconciliation that we might see by sharing the gospel, uh, people in the world reconciled to God. And so both believers individually and churches corporately, they must always ensure that what they're doing, the activities of the church, are in keeping with, with one of these three purposes. We need to stay on track. We have a mission, came from our Lord, our head, our master, and we need to make sure we're we're living and doing according to his mission, not getting sidetracked with many other things. I think we know all too many local churches have devolved into a type of social club. They're not doing all that they do to exalt God, edify believers, or evangelize the lost. They have other purposes and that we cannot let the church's mission be diluted. We need to keep the main thing, the main thing, and that's the Lord's work until he returns. Now, speaking of those activities of the church or the ministries of the church, let's, let's talk about that. The third category here, the ministry of the church. Just to get a little more specific, broadly, we're to exalt God, edify believers, evangelize the lost. But what specific activities has the Lord given us to carry out these purposes? What ministries should the church engage in so that it might exalt, edify, and evangelize? Many are given. We'll highlight some. Again, you, you know these because we do them. I mean, you're here in the church. You know the church. We, we practice these, but it's worth showing from Scripture some of the main ministries or activities the Lord gave to us. So let's highlight some of the main ministries or activities of the church. And first is worship. And the overall ministry of the church is worship, which can be broadly defined as praising and glorifying God. I'm not here talking just about singing. We'll list singing separately later. Worship is much broader than just singing. You put a little money in the offering, that's supposed to be worship too. Listening to a sermon, fellowshipping, that's supposed to be aspects of worship. All that we do is to be worship, a reflection of revering God, praising God, living in light of God, that is worship. Must worship in spirit and truth. And this involves the members of the church presenting their entire selves to God. It's not just giving him your voice or your hands. It's giving him your whole self. You're presenting your whole self to him in service for his glory. Now, from the beginning, Christians did start gathering on a specific day of the week to corporately worship. You're to worship the Lord in spirit and truth. That spirit dimension just refers to the right place, which is wherever you are. That's the right place of worship, as in your spirit. 
We're to worship God all the time, but corporately, the, the people of God started coming together regularly the first day of the week, which was Sunday, as Sabbath observance uh, fell, as the old covenant was replaced by the new. The, the gathering on Sundays to commemorate the Lord's resurrection became a day for corporate worship and that pattern throughout the New Testament. And so Christians now corporately gather on Sundays to worship God. But we must remember that uh, our, as a church, we're to worship more than just on Sundays. But, you know, if John four twenty four, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Christ said that looking forward to the day when you're not just going to worship here on Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim where my people will worship me in spirit and truth. And that should be us now. And then Romans 12, 1, we're called to present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. We still offer sacrifices. It's just not an animal. It's, it's just us, our lives, and everything we have is to be put on the altar, rendered to God. So worship is first. Second activity is the word. The ministry of the word. It's one of the most significant ministries the Lord gave us. It's a huge part in exalting God, huge part in edifying believers, huge part in evangelizing the lost, the word. This began with the teaching of Jesus, but God inspired apostles and prophets to extend revelation with the New Testament. And with the new church, this written word quickly became central. Scripture reading, teaching, preaching, exposition, exhortation, These became prominent ministries of the church. They were commanded to be prominent ministries of the church. They have a key function in leading people to exalt God, edifying believers. You can't do it without the word. Evangelizing the lost, we preach the word. So God's word is sufficient, really, for everything the church is called to do. It should be central. It should have a central role and function in a local church that meets corporately and in individual Christian lives. Remember in 1 Timothy 4.13, he exhorted Timothy to give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. And similar, 2 Timothy 4.2, he reminds him to preach the word in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and careful instruction. So the ministry of the word is a big one. So is the ministry of prayer, third big ministry of the church, prayer. I I told you, you knew all these, but we're just establishing the basics. Nonetheless, prayer. It was another essential and constant ministry of the church from the beginning. Immediately, the the disciples gathered around the apostles were devoting themselves to prayer, especially when there was a great need. They're interceding, thanking, praising, so forth through prayer. It really should be no different today. Ephesians 6.18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. Colossians 4.2, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. We should be a praying people as God's people. Now, fourth, here we'll add singing as its own dimension, its own activity. The, the verbal praise of the church is a ministry. Members of the early church lifted up their voices in a special worship or or musical worship, and we are to do so today. They did so far less formally than we do today. Oftentimes, they had no instruments. The only instrument found in the New Testament uh, for the church to use, at least that we're told to, is the human voice. No other instrument is mentioned or exhorted in the New Testament when it comes to our musical worship. We are to primarily lift up our voices to praise God, to remember him sing his praises. Instruments makes a, a, you know, a sound fuller and is a blessing, but make sure you're using your voice, you, the instrument he gave you to sing his praises. That's what Paul and Silas did when they were imprisoned. They started singing hymns. They had no instruments, but they started singing hymns to the Lord. And Ephesians 5, 18 through 19 tells us to be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing making melody with your heart to the Lord. Not just a formal little moment on a Sunday morning, but this, this type of encouragement through song should be a regular part of our lives. A means, I think I mentioned this morning, even a means of renewing our minds, filling our minds with truth, the power of music. It's actually quite powerful to regulate thinking, 
Let's fill our minds with what is good and, and sing. Now, let's add fellowship as another main ministry or activity of the church. The Greek word here is koinonia. Probably heard that before. Carries the idea of sharing. The early church got together. They started sharing everything. Meals, prayers, resources. And fellowship is a key ministry of the church. We're, we're expressing our unity. We're living life together, sharing with those in need, just ministering to one another. And the kingdom of fellowship is, is serving where the church members uh, share life together and, and serve those who are needy using our spiritual gifts, which I've mentioned several times, to help those in need in the church body. And so you could you can consider all the one another's as maybe a, a dimension of fellowship. But also that the key verse, Acts 2.42, right after the beginning of the church, says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to breaking of bread and to prayer. Because that just hits some of the main ones we've already covered, ministries of the church. You know, we can't add, uh, we can't add evangelism, I should say, as a main ministry or activity, sharing the gospel with the lost. We mentioned 2 Corinthians 5.18, the ministry of reconciliation we have. We can also mention the ordinances as a key ministry of the church. Uh, the two being baptism and the Lord's Supper. These activities are actually so significant. They're very specific. Call them ordinances, two that the Lord gave to the church. They're very specific and so significant, I think they merit their own section. So let's move on now to the fourth main section we're going to cover tonight when it comes to the doctrine of the church, the ordinances of the church. They, they merit a little bit of a closer look. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Let's cover the ordinances of the church. And I think some newer Christians are sometimes confused by the ordinances, especially if they come from a Catholic background, because Catholics teach there are seven sacraments for the church. Baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, penance, matrimony, holy orders, and extreme unction. And these seven sacraments are seen as sacred institutions and they impart saving grace to someone, even if they don't have personal faith. These are means of grace, means of God's saving grace even. And Protestants reject this understanding of the sacraments because it's not found in scripture and it's adding works to faith, which is a heresy Paul condemned in Galatians 1. It's faith alone, not faith plus the sacraments. Instead, Protestants hold to only two sacraments because only two are actually mentioned in the Bible. Only two of these are prescribed in the Bible, I should say. And likewise, Protestants tend to shy away from the term sacrament because of its baggage and connotations and use the word ordinance. They're just lasting memorials or lasting practices the church or the Lord gave for the church to do. There's only two of them that he told the church to do in this manner. And that's all we practice these would be baptism, the Lord's Supper. These are symbols or traditions used to visibly show invisible realities. That's what these ordinances all are. Symbols and traditions used to visibly show some invisible reality for edification. So let's look at them one by one. There's only two, starting with baptism. And, you know, a good way to be introduced to baptism was like a series of questions. So let's do that. Now, first, what is baptism? Where baptism comes from the Greek word baptizo, which literally means to immerse. Same thing. Remember, church, ecclesia was a secular word that Christians hijacked and became like a Christian term. Same thing with baptizo. It just mean, meant to immerse something in water. Like you're doing laundry down by the river. You're, you're baptizing your clothes. It just meant you're dunking them. But over time, it became stolen by the Christians, and baptism became a very specific thing these Christians do where they, they dunk new members in water. and signifies their entrance to the body of Christ. <clears throat> the baptism of the early church was different from John the Baptist's baptism, which was for purification before the Lord in preparation for the Messiah. But the church's baptism was associated with a new follower of Christ, where they're initiated uh, into this church body. They were identifying with the body of Christ. And the Lord himself commissioned his disciples to, to do this. You make a new disciple, 
first thing you do is you baptize them into the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's like they're taking the new last name. You get married, you take a new last name. And, and coming to Christ, you get baptized, you now have a new name. You now go by the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. And really, there's no concept of an unbaptized Christian in the early church. They didn't lose sight of this practice. And it should be that way today. You come to true faith, you're baptized right away. And that's just the pattern we have. Again, Matthew 28, 19, the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. That's what the church did. Acts 2, 41, Peter preaches. Thousands are saved. It says, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day were added about 3,000 souls. Another question we can add is, what does baptism signify? And baptism signifies identification with Christ. Key word is identification. Identification with Christ and membership in his body. It's a public declaration that one has been united to Christ by faith. You are Obeying the world and or obeying the Lord and letting the world know, so to speak, that you are with Christ. You identify with Christ as your Lord, your Savior. In a sense, corporately, you're identifying with his body, the church. You're now in the church. You belong to his body with him as your head. Individually, baptism symbolizes the death of the old self, the washing away of sins, and the birth or resurrection of the new self. And that's what's pictured in, in the dunking underwater, the, the dying to old self, the cleansing, the rising to new life in Christ. You get that from Romans 6, 3 through 4. And Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In baptism, we identify with Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. And when you come out of that water as a new believer, you're to now live like it. Live like, like Christ. Quick question, does, does baptism bring salvation? Trust you all know the answer, but we'll throw it in here because this is a, a basic Bible doctrine series. And you need to clarify that, well, no, it doesn't. does not produce salvation, does not contribute to salvation even in the slightest this has been a major misunderstanding throughout church history, particularly, again, coming from the Roman Catholics, because they believe baptism is necessary for salvation and the cause of regeneration. Remember a couple of weeks ago, or last week, we said the doctrine of salvation and talking about regeneration, this new birth. They believe the waters, the baptismal waters, the sacrament causes that new birth, that regeneration. And therefore, it's a means of salvation. And that view is known as baptismal regeneration. But again, that this is faith plus works. It's another gospel. It's never taught in scripture. It makes the work of baptism necessary for salvation. This just came from church tradition and not from the scriptures. Now, a question, who should be baptized? Answer this real quick as well. Who should be baptized? You know, all Protestants agree that baptism is for believers. There are some Christians that believe also that, that infants in Christian homes should be baptized. They believe that baptism in the New Testament parallels circumcision in the Old Testament, and therefore infants should be baptized as a sign and seal of God's covenant, just like infants were circumcised as a sign and seal of the Old Covenant. And baptism, like circumcision, signifies entrance into the covenant community. And look, that that is true in the sense that baptism is the sign of the new covenant. Circumcision was the sign of the old covenant. Baptism is the sign of the new covenant. But this mis uh, infant baptism misunderstands some of the parallels between uh, circumcision and water baptism and uh, fails to rightly grasp the differences between the old and new covenants because they're not the same. They're not just old and new. They're quite, quite different, fundamentally different. And circumcision was an external rite given to every male, only the males, regardless of their inward spiritual state. It has nothing to do with the state of your soul. It's, it's an external rite. This physical act showed their association with a covenant community, a people. It did not signify salvation. It just signified you belong to this people, this ethnic group, Israel. 
what they needed for salvation was a heart circumcision, a true inner heart circumcision, salvation for them to be right with God. But the Old Covenant and the sign of the Old Covenant did not point to that, did not provide that. This was an ethnic symbol. But that's not like baptism in the New Testament. Baptism is not just a way to show you belong to the church, the New Covenant community, like physical circumcision was with the Old Covenant community. Rather, baptism signifies heart circumcision. That's the point. It's more parallel to heart circumcision than physical circumcision. If you want a strict parallel, it is heart circumcision. That's what it symbolizes. Now, the thing is, heart circumcision, i.e., faith or salvation, that that only comes when someone believes, not when you're born, when you believe. Therefore, only those who, who believe, who've been regenerated, who've gone, undergone regeneration or heart circumcision, should receive the symbol of that and be baptized. Membership in the church comes by believing, by being inwardly changed. You're not, not born into the church. You can be born to a local church, into this kind of, in a sense, a covenant community, but you don't actually belong to the church proper until you're saved. It's a new covenant community, a spirit-filled community. Until that happens, you're not actually in the church. Baptism is meant for that. You know, before entrance into the covenant community was external and based on physical birth. But now, entrance into the true covenant community is internal and it's based on spiritual birth. And so until a person comes to the point of faith in Christ, that they shouldn't be baptized. So just to summarize, look, it is true. Baptism is the sign of the new covenant, like circumcision was the sign of the old covenant. It's just that the old covenant was not a saving covenant. It was a covenant for ethnic Israel that you entered by your first birth. But the new covenant, in contrast, is a saving covenant, and you enter it by your, your second birth. It's for Jew and Gentile that you enter by second birth, or new birth, which is by faith. That precludes infants. It's meant for believers. And that's why we believe, at least, Scripture teaches believers' baptism, that uh, baptism should only be administered to those who've made a credible profession of faith. They, therefore, should be baptized. Well, let's keep going. We've got to keep moving here. Uh, a few more. How should baptism be administered? I guess the last, last question we'll ask here, the, the mode of baptism this is not a deal breaker. It shouldn't divide Christians. Uh, Scripture is not uh, dogmatic. We don't need to be dogmatic. But we do believe in immersion baptism. It comes from just the word baptizo. It literally means to immerse in water. And it fits several passages. Anytime baptism mentioned in the New Testament, uh, either it's clear in the context or it's not stated at all, but that, that someone was immersed, like Christ went down into the Jordan, down to the waters, came back up, so forth. It likewise fits the symbolism of baptism. As a person plunges under the water, this symbolizes the death of their old self with Christ. And as they rise from the, the waters, forgiven, cleansed, it symbolizes their rise to new life. And so immersion is why we practice a baptism by immersion where you're getting all the way wet. Sorry, no little sprinkling here and there. It doesn't suffice to pour a little cup on your head. Seems nice, but no, nope, you're going to get baptized here. You're going in the tank behind me. Now, as you think about the ordinance of baptism, though, for one, simple application is just to be baptized. If you profess faith in Christ, if he's your Lord, if you identify with him as your Lord and your Savior, there is nothing stopping you from being baptized. There shouldn't be. Just be baptized in obedience and in worship. And likewise, for those who have been baptized, we forget about it too much. We should reflect on our, our baptism, our, our status as baptized in Christ. Because we learned, we did a baptism series not too long ago, that our, our water baptism really points us to our union with Christ, our baptism in Christ. We need to recall that. As often as you see a new believer be baptized, recall it, that that's you. You are, you are in Christ. You died to sin. You've risen to new life. You were washed by the waters, so to speak. Let that rejuvenate your faith and compel you to, to walk in newness of life. Now, we need to move on to the second ordinance of the church. These are, we're still kind of talking about the activities of the church, but we've broken off to a new section on the ordinances. Baptism, the first one, Lord's Supper, is the second. 
And let's, let's throw another series of questions to help us understand the Lord's Supper. And what is the Lord's Supper? It's also known as communion. It's a ceremony whereby Christians partake of some bread and wine in, in remembrance of Christ's death. Jesus himself ordained or instituted this memorial, a memorial ordinance on the night before his death during that last supper. So sometimes it's referred to as the Lord's Supper. And that last supper took place during the Passover feast. Jesus was redefining, in a sense, Passover. He is now pictured as the final Passover lamb. And the bread and the cup, those were elements of a Passover dinner, but he infused them with new meaning, that his blood is this cup, his body is this bread, which we are to remember him by, broken and spilt for the forgiveness of our sins. And so as we participate in communion, we're remembering Christ's sacrifice, we're proclaiming his death, we're awaiting his return. And such an act of remembrance should be done solemnly, seriously, yet joyfully, and hopefully for all it signifies. See this in a Matthew 26, 26 to 229, where Christ instituted this. It says, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it, gave it to the disciples, and said, take, eat, this is my body. When he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Now, another question, let's, let's go a little deeper. What, what's the meaning of the Lord's Supper? What is the significance here? Why did the Lord want his people to do this? Again, with the doctrine of the church, I keep giving a little contrast with the Roman Catholic Church, because in church history, they, they dominated a solid thousand plus years there and really skews how people think of the church. So I'll mention their view of communion is known as transubstantiation. The word means change of substance. And so what, during the Eucharist, that's what they call it, the bread and the wine change into the literal body and blood of Jesus. Although the touch, taste, smell, and look don't change, the elements change, they say, to the body and blood of Jesus. And the priest then, this is the, the, actually the, the most troubling part, offers up the body and blood of Jesus, again, to be sacrificed again for renewed and ongoing forgiveness of sins. It's a re-sacrifice. The priest is sacrificing Christ on the altar for renewed and ongoing forgiveness of sins. That's the worst part. This view expresses a huge misunderstanding of the atonement. Primarily, the problem is with the atonement, but also the symbolism of the Lord's Supper. Christ's work on the cross was finished. There is no more sacrifice for sin. He said it is finished for a reason. Likewise, like in John 6 and in the Lord's Supper, when Christ said, this is my body, this is my blood, his disciples understood he was talking figuratively, not literally. Then in John 6, where Christ said similarly, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He goes on later in the context, making it crystal clear he is being figurative with his words. We don't need to literally consume his body and blood to be saved. But more significantly, when it comes to the atonement, listen to Hebrews 10, verses 10 through 14. The author reminds us that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Speaking of the Old Testament priest, he says, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered himself, uh, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the book of Hebrews stresses that over and over again. He's one offering, one priest, one atonement. It's done. It's a one and done, the cross was. And so in reality, the Lord's Supper, what is it? It's a memorial time, a time of remembrance. So we do partake of the memorial view, which rejects seeing Jesus as physically present in the elements in any way. Communion gives a picture of the death of Jesus 
And as someone partakes, he's remembering Christ's death and memorializing how that death has been applied to him by faith. And so the Lord's Supper serves to affirm one's faith, strengthen one's commitments, deepen one's fellowship, encourage one's walk. Christ gave it to us for edification, a way to renew the mind, remember him. We're so prone to forget we need that. Now, next question, who should partake of the Lord's Supper? Lord's Supper is a remembrance and celebration of Christ's death. Again, it does not cause salvation, does not contribute to salvation in the slightest. It's of no benefit to unbelievers. It really is only meant to be practiced by professing believers. This is a serious memorial not to be taken lightly. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul issues a warning to those who would do so. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven through 30 He says, right after giving the communion passage, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. That's a euphemism for, for death. The Lord killed some people for their irreverence uh, during the Lord's Supper, not judging the body rightly. The Lord does take it seriously. And if by application, it's, it's obvious we, sh- we should take it seriously. We should appreciate this time, though, and, uh, and celebrate it. It's a solemn time, but it's a solemn celebration is, is how I've put it. And baptism was given for that one ordinance, one and done, beginning of your Christian life, not to be repeated, but the Lord's Supper is to be repeated until the Lord returns. And it does sustain us. It helps renew our minds, helps us to set our minds on the things of the Lord. We're we're prone to wander. We're prone to forget Christ. He knows we need his sacrifice, his death, in front of our mind every day, if we're going to live in light of it. And the Lord's Supper helps recalibrate us often. And it's an act of worship as we uh, obey him and do what he says. But especially as the church comes together corporately, this is a corporate ordinance meant to be done in a church assembly, a local gathering. It also stresses our unity as there's just one bread, there's one cup, we partake together. It's also a reflection that we're, we're his one body, come together to remember him. So it's special when it's done together. We also need to let the Lord's Supper be a purifying time. Of course, you should repent of your sin right away. But the seriousness of the Lord's Supper can help us take better stock of our lives. And if you find in that moment of reflection, there's been sin or deceitfulness of sin, let the truth penetrate your heart, convict you, lead you to repentance. We just recall the Lord's Supper. The Lord shed his blood for the church, for the forgiveness of our sins. He's the groom. He wants a bride. He died for a bride. He did it to purify the church. Ephesians 5, 26 goes on to say, he gave himself up for the church that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she would be holy and blameless. The Lord Jesus wants a pure bride. He wants his bride wearing white on the day he returns. And so we must not tolerate any sin in our lives and be just quick to repent and let the Lord's Supper be a refreshing time to offer ourselves to the Lord and and seek him in purity. Our time's nearly up, but let's squeeze in here one last category of thought when it comes to the doctrine of the church. And this would be the government of the church. So we're just doing a big survey, a big review here of the doctrine of the church. And well, when it comes to now these local assemblies, or after Christ ascended, the Spirit comes down, this, this thing begins, this organism begins of the church. Uh, what, what's it supposed to look like? How should it be structured, run, governed, administrated? The Lord has told us. This is important doctrine. It, it doesn't affect someone's salvation, whether you come from this church or that background or that denomination. It's not a salvation issue. But getting it right leads to a more effectively run church, and we want to just know what the Word says. So let's just cover some of the basics. Let's first recall, you know, who is the head of the church? Obviously, we'll get this straight. It's Christ. It's not the Pope, not any man. Christ himself is the head of the church. And Christ's headship 
teaches his authority, his rule, his control over the church. The church is ultimately governed and guided by Christ. And all forms of leadership, spiritual and otherwise, they stem from him. No one has any authority in the church of their own. What gives any human the right to exercise authority over any other human? Only God's authority. All authority is delegated from God. That's government authority, family authority, and church authority. God delegated his authority to men in the church to lead. And so we are to do that humbly and carefully by his word and by his clear delineated uh, rules. Additionally, as head, the church is Christ's body, which he builds and directs. We've covered that already. And, and so uh, any government should reflect, though, submission to Christ's head and what he says. Now, I want to quickly go over some key terms because a lot of the confusion surrounding church government stems from misunderstanding these key terms, terms for different types of church leadership. So quick survey, it'll make more sense to you. So the word for apostle or apostolos, the word for apostle, messenger. The word in Greek just means messenger, refer to any messenger, but again, early on, it became a technical term for Christ's hand-selected special messengers or representatives. The apostles, they're commissioned by the Lord himself to be his representatives on earth and to lay the foundation of the church. They were limited in number and they had unique authority. They could at times speak God's words and write down God's words. And they confirm their authenticity oftentimes through signs and wonders. But the office of apostle ended in the first century when scripture was complete. And a kicker there is one of the requirements to be an apostle was to have seen the risen Lord. That ended uh, at, after that era. Now, the second category is the prophet, prophetes, the term for prophet. And there are many prophets throughout the Old Testament. And then in the early church, there were believers with the gift of prophecy. New Testament, it appears some prophets formed an office in the church, the office of prophet. It was a leadership role second to the apostles. Unlike the apostles, the prophets were not sent out to the front lines for the establishment of new churches. It appears the apostles had a broad ministry, prophets a local ministry. Prophets ministered locally, either providing direct unwritten revelation or expounding upon existing revelation. But along with the apostles, the prophets formed the foundation of the church. And that office ended with the completion of the New Testament, with the end of Christ's original apostles. Ephesians 2.20, the foundation of the church, the apostles and prophets thereafter is being built up. Now, there's a word for elder, presbyteros, elder or old man. Word presbyteros. In a literal sense, it refers to an old man. But it's used in scripture figuratively to uh, refer to a church leader who carries dignity, maturity, and authority, which is commonly associated with, with the elderly, which is why I give the term elder. And elders in the church didn't necessarily have to be old in life, but they did have to be mature in the faith. And these elders were viewed as the local rulers or authorities over a body of believers. Next term is episkopos. We get the word bishop. Or overseer from this word, epi and scopos. Epi, over or overall, scopos, scope. You get the word scope for that. Many church groups today refer to their highest leader as a bishop. This comes from this word. Uh, this word refers to the one who watches over everything, hence overseer. You see it translated overseer. This was applied to church leaders describing their function of watching over the flock of God. They were to oversee the function of the church. Then they also have the word pastor or shepherd, poimen. This is often in connection with teaching, that poimen are, are the pastor teachers of the church. And this word speaks of leaders as shepherds of the sheep. A shepherding function is seen where they're caring for souls, leading people to, to green pastures, feeding them the word protecting them. It's a function of the, the shepherd. One more term here is diakonos, which is deacon. And that word just means servant, one who serves with his hands, those who serve. Now, that was a normal term. Again, it became a technical term referred to an office of the church, the office of deacon. 
And deacons did not function in a teaching, preaching, or, or leadership role. They just served, uh, their role was to serve others and care for the material needs of the church. So think of all those terms and study all the terms for types of church leadership in the New Testament. You come away with six categories, and it might appear that there's still six categories of leadership in the church today, but there's not. There's just two. There's a reason for that. You know, first, at least we believe that the office of apostle and prophet has ended. So those two were meant for the first century for the establishing of the church. They were meant to end. So apostle and prophet have ended. Now, secondly, the office of deacon still exists. The next to that is the office of elder. But here's the thing. Those three terms, elder, presbyteros, overseer, episkopos, and pastor, poimen. You do a study of the New Testament, you find those three terms are always used interchangeably. They're not separate. They're not distinct. They're always used interchangeably. We don't have time to do that study right now, but I can point you to that elsewhere. And so when you, when you do that study, you put together the fact that elder, pastor, overseer is the same office. Uh, you find that there's really two lasting offices the Lord gave to the church for it to be governed, structured, and run. That of the elder, pastor, overseer, and that of the deacon. So let's finish our time by just quickly making a note on the office of elder and the office of deacon when it comes to church structure. Overall, we often just call it elder, but any elder could be called an overseer or could be called a pastor. The terms are interchangeable. Each term just emphasizes a different aspect of the office. The term elder, presbyteros, emphasizes often the, the dignity, the maturity of the office. Episcopos, overseer, almost the administrative side where you're just looking over all the functions and the, the ongoings of a church. And then pastor, poimen, really the shepherding, the teaching function really comes out in that term. But again, they're all interchangeable. And since the apostles and prophets ended, the primary leaders of the church are to be elders, pastors, overseers, which is why even in the New Testament writings, you find uh, all leadership function has transferred to the elder pastor. When, when James thinks of those who are sick, he didn't say, hey, quick, get the prophet to pray over this person. Get the apostle to heal this person. He says, get the elders of the church to pray for him that he might be healed. See examples of that over and over in the New Testament as time goes on. The leadership transitions from apostles and prophets to elder pastor, teachers, and then deacons. The qualifications for the office of elder are in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. This office of elder is limited only to men. The duties of these elders are varied. They're to shepherd, to teach, to rule, make decisions, to protect, keep watch over, distribute money, make doctrinal decisions, visit the sick, pray, encourage, and more. Now, it should be noted, in 1 Timothy 5, we learn there's a special subclass of elder. He talks about those elders who excel at teaching and preaching. They're elders like the others, but they have a gift, a spiritual gift of teaching and preaching, and they excel at it. He says they're worthy of double honor, which refers to a remuneration. They can devote all their time to the work of the ministry. And finally, the Bible teaches there should be a plurality of these elders in every church. Get that from Titus and elsewhere, that the Lord's structure for these churches was, there's really no superstructure, no denomination is ever prescribed in the New Testament. The constant pattern is a plurality of elders in every local church. Autonomous, plural, local elders is the picture you get in the New Testament at the very least. Now, really quick, a note on deacons. So you have elders as the, the lasting office of the church, and that is joined by the deacon. And deacons, are, they're those who serve the needs of the church. Their qualifications are very similar to the elder, but they function differently. They're not involved in ruling or making decisions teaching, preaching, or really even shepherding. Deacons are to care for the administrative needs of the church in order to free up the elder pastor overseers to be devoted to the word and prayer. So they play a vital part in the ongoing function of the church and the day-to-day. -day. Well, we'll stop there. We squeeze a lot, and honestly, I cut out a lot. <laughs> There's a lot in the doctrine of the church, but we're binding ourselves to more or less one hour here. But at the very least, at the, uh, the final word, you know, as Christians, we, we need to strive to just have a high view of the church. 
It's good to study the doctrine of the church in the Bible and to learn what the Lord says about us, who we are to be, the people who's made us. But I don't know about you, I've talked to many Christians over the years who've, they've been burnt by the church. They've been harmed by the church. They've been soured to the church by all these experiences because the church is not perfect in this age. And so many people have been turned off by the church and no church is perfect. No pastor is perfect, but they've come to have a low view of the church and we can't go there. Yes, we can have countless examples of pastors and churches that have done wrong and fallen and the Lord will judge. He will remove lampstands. He will judge as he sees fit. But we have to remember at the end of the day, Christ loves his church. He died for it. He's coming back for it. He's interceding for it right now. He will be, it will be perfected. So we just need to retain a high view of the church, like the ideal church. And we must seek its purity in our local church. We need to pursue that, the purity, the fidelity of it. We're on mission. We're doing the right thing. We're about the right business. We have to fight for that all the time, that we might represent our head to the world. And that's, that's what we're doing here. So don't let imperfect fallen humans sour you to the wonder of Christ's bride. Let's keep a high view of the church and promote that and love what Christ loves. And that is his church, which is not a building, but the people, us, those who follow Christ. Well, with that in mind, let's finish up. Join me in a word of prayer. Lord God, we thank you for what you revealed about the mystery of the church. More than that, we thank you we're a part of it. We get to partake of that ministry. We've been called by you to know your son, to be the bride to the groom. Thank you for sending your son Christ to, to die for this church. For apart from that, there'd be no bride. There'd be no homecoming, no flock, no body, no building, no temple. But we thank you that you, you sent your son who laid aside his own life to, to pay for our sins and purify people for his own pers- uh, possession. We long for the day when Christ returns. We can be with him perfectly, unadulterated, free from sin. That keeps the church diluted in this age. We pray that Christ comes quickly, but in the meantime, help us as your people to, to be about your business. Keep us free from sin. Help us to be pure and repentant and uh, just busy with the work you've given us to do. To edify believers, evangelize the lost, and above all, to exalt you. And we, we give ourselves to that, all to your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.